Now go ahead and get your Bibles open to the book of Jeremiah. You can start in Jeremiah chapter 2, but we're going to be skipping around uh, through the book of Jeremiah, a lot like we did with the book of Isaiah uh, last week. And so as we continue through the book, uh, the Bible, we come to the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, like the book of Isaiah, is a book of prophecy. It is God giving his word to a prophet that he is then delivering to the nation of Israel. Now, Jeremiah, he is ministering in the land of Judah. And you got to remember, during this time, we are in the divided kingdom stage. The nation of Israel has suffered a civil war, and they have broken up into the northern kingdom, which makes up Israel, and they are the, the ten tribes of Israel. And then the southern kingdom, which is made up of two tribes of Israel, and it is, it is the nation of Judah. Judah, is they have Jerusalem in them. Israel, the northern kingdom, their capital is Samaria. And the northern kingdom never has a godly king. They are led by about 20 wicked, vile kings that just continue to take the nation of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, deeper and deeper into idolatry. And we saw last week Isaiah prophesied that the Assyrians would come and conquer the northern kingdom, destroy them and take them away captive. And that has happened. God has sent the Assyrians, they have captured the northern kingdom, taken them away as slaves, and now it's just the southern kingdom, Judah. Now Judah also had a lot of very wicked, very evil kings, but they had about eight godly kings. Eight kings that loved God and served God and did everything they could to bring the nation back to to, serve, to worshiping God and getting rid of vital worship. And so the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, they lasted a little bit longer because of these godly kings who, who ministered to God and would bring the nation back to God and these prophets of God who helped these kings do what was necessary. And so, so Jeremiah, he is preaching in Judah, the southern kingdom. It is after the conquest of the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom has already been destroyed. They've already been taken away as slaves and Judah is still there. And he is prophesying in the southern kingdom in the capital of Jerusalem. And he is prophesying about the incoming invasion of Babylon. He warns of the, the nation of Babylon going to come into Israel, to Judah, to Jerusalem. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to take people captive because of the wickedness of the nation. Now, he begins his ministry under King Josiah. He is really the last good king in the nation of Judah. And he does this king, King Josiah, he's, he's the king where we read it in 2 Kings where he finds the law of God. The, the law of God's kind of been lost and it's just, it's just kind of these scrolls are tucked away and no one's read them and no one's even acknowledged them for a while. And these scrolls are discovered by Jeremiah and they bring it to Josiah and Josiah reads them and he's convicted because he knows how wickedly the nation of Judah has been acting. And so he reestablishes the Passover. He reestablishes sacrifice. He gets rid of the, the false gods and the false temples. And he really brings the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah back to God. His leadership 
and his godliness have stayed the judgment of God on the southern kingdom. But Josiah dies. And when he dies, the next king kind of reverses everything he did. He brings back the idol worship. He brings back the Baal worship. And they, they go through a quick succession of kings. They have about three kings in a very short period of time after King Josiah because they're killed by each other. And it's just it's a lot of turmoil going on. But each king is getting worse and worse than the other. And they even bring back child sacrifice. And Jeremiah is witnessing all this. He sees all this happening. He's been warning for years that their idol worship and their wickedness and their sinfulness will bring the judgment of God. He rejoices when Josiah brings back the worship of God and brings back the Passover and kind of stays the judgment of God. But then he sees it all kind of go right back to where it was and get even worse than it was before. So Jeremiah... He's, he's been preaching in Jerusalem and prophesying and warning for about 20 years before God tells him to write down what he is saying. And that's what the book of Jeremiah is. The book of Jeremiah is a collection of kind of the sermons and the warnings and the prophecies and the poems uh, that Jeremiah has preached before the captivity and what he says after the captivity, but it's also a collection of his stories from his life. See, Jeremiah, he is called to be a prophet to Israel and to the world. God tells him, you know, Jeremiah's got a lot of great verses there. Jeremiah is the verse where it's where we, you know, the Bible says that God had called him from the womb and formed him from the womb to be a prophet of God. And so, you know, we've got these great verses in there. And God tells Jeremiah, your prophecy, your words are going to tear down and destroy and uproot. But they're also going to build up and plant and lift up people as well. So he is going to accuse Israel of their sin. He's going to warn them of the coming judgment, but he's also going to give a beautiful message of hope. He's also going to give a wonderful message of hope for the future. And I know a lot of you are thinking, man, that sounds very similar to the book of Isaiah. It is. Isaiah talked about judgment, talked about coming uh, punishment, talked about the sin, what sin would do, and also gave hope. That's what a lot of the prophets do. That's the point of the Bible. Again, we're trying to look at the whole Bible, and throughout the Bible, there's one theme. We are sinful and wicked. Our sinfulness and wickedness is going to bring judgment, but God loved us so much he gives us hope. God loves us so much that despite how we act and despite how we treat him and despite how we reject him, he's always faithful to us and always gives us hope. And that's, that's not just the story of Isaiah and Jeremiah. That's the story of the Bible. We see it in every story. And that's the point of this series for us to see in the series how the same theme runs throughout Scripture. Now, Jeremiah, his, his life and his ministry, it coincided with the ministries of Nahum and Zephaniah and Habakkuk. And later on, at the end of his life, the book of Daniel and the book of Obadiah. So the first half of Jeremiah's prophecy, it is to warn the nation of Israel 
and to warn us. Again, we, we need to put ourselves in these stories and understand these stories aren't just about Israel. They're about us. So the warnings that Jeremiah gives to Israel about their sin, we need to look at our life and say, that's war that warning is for us as well. Say, you're saying that we're going to be taken captive by an invading nation and making slaves? No, but sin will enslave you. Sin will capture you. Sin will destroy your life. Even as a believer, even as a child of God, sin will destroy your life. So we need to take these warnings for what they are. God, in a loving way, saying, hey, there's danger ahead. And if you don't listen to what's being said to you, there's, there's punishment. There's judgment for it. There's consequences for it. Even as, see, as believers, and, and there's a lot of extremes in Christianity. But one extreme is, you know, we're, we're saved by grace. Our sins are forgiven. You know, God says it's under the blood. Our, sea is in the, our sin is in the sea of forgetfulness. God will never remember it. It's from the far as the east, it's in the west. And he forgave all of our sins when he died on the cross, our past sins, present sins, and future sins. So we can do whatever we want to do because all of our sins are forgiven. We're under grace. So we can live our life how we want to. And, and since we're under grace, we don't, we're never going to be punished for our sins because Jesus took the punishment. And yes, Jesus did take the punishment for our sins. He took the judgment for our sins. But there's still consequences for our sins. There's still hurt. There's still pain. There's still rejection. God, we still lose that fellowship with God. As a believer, even if your sins are forgiven, your sins will destroy your life. And that's what Jeremiah is warning us about. Yeah, you, Israel, you're God's people. The Bible says you're the apple of God's eye. You are his chosen nation to bring the salvation to the world. But that doesn't give you the right to live your life in a disobedience to the word of God. And that's what Jeremiah is telling us. Yeah, you're children of God. Yeah, you're saved by grace through faith. The blood of Jesus is on your account. When God looks at you, he sees you as righteous as Jesus Christ. But that doesn't give you the right to live your life in disobedience to his word. Sin in your life will destroy you, will take you captive, will make you a slave, and you will lose the joy and the peace and the promises of God because God cannot and will not fellowship with sin. And that's what Jeremiah is telling us. So <clears throat> the first half of Jeremiah's prophecy is, is warning the nation of Israel, of the judgment that they're going to face because of their idolatry. And he, he accuses, throughout the book of Jeremiah, he accuses the nation of Israel of committing adultery against God. He accuses the leaders of Israel of being corrupt and taking advantage of people. The widows, the orphans, the immigrants that were in the nation of Judah, they were being taken advantage of. They were being mistreated and abused, and that went directly against the law of God and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And the leaders didn't care. They didn't care that the orphans and the widows and the immigrants were being mistreated and taken advantage of because they are the ones taking advantage of them. They were the ones benefiting 
from what was happening to his people. So they didn't care. And so he accuses the leaders of being corrupt. But Israel doesn't listen. They ignore the warnings of Jeremiah. And because of their sin, because of their corruption, because of their idolatry, because of their child sacrifice, they're going to be destroyed. And Jeremiah, he warns of this. And then he watches as Babylon comes down from the north, surrounds Jerusalem, and begins a couple-year campaign that destroys the nation of Judah, that destroys the city of Jerusalem, that destroys the temple of God, and that takes all the people that are there captive. Now, Jeremiah is not taken captive into Babylon. Why? Because it's interesting, we're not going to get into it, but he is actually kidnapped by some Jewish religious leaders that don't like him and taken to Egypt and dumped in Egypt because they're sick of listening to him. But he's still prophesying against, about, for God. He's still warning about sin. And then in Lamentations, Jeremiah is weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem, of the temple, and the nation of Israel. And here's what Jeremiah is telling us. God loves his children. God loves his creation. God loves the nation of Israel. But they are constantly and willfully unfaithful to him. They deliberately disobey his commands. They worship false gods. They run from him. They ignore him and they, they live their lives how they want to live their lives, not how God says to live their lives. They think God is being restrictive and, and being too harsh on them. So they want the freedom to do whatever they want to do. And it's been like that since Genesis. You know, Adam and Eve, they sinned not because they ate the fruit. They sinned because they wanted to do what they wanted to do. They said God's way is too restrictive. It's keeping me from enjoying my life to its fullest, which is ridiculous because they lived in paradise. They walked with God every single day. They could enjoy anything they wanted to enjoy in the Garden of Eden. God just said that one tree, don't eat of it. And they said, you're, you're too harsh on us. You put too many rules on us. So we're going to live our life how we want to live it. So they, they disobey God. They do what they want to do, and then they run from God. God cast them out because of their sin, but because he loves them. He says, you, you blew it. You ruined not just, you know, your home, but you ruined our relationship. I can't fellowship with you anymore. I can't spend time with you anymore. But I love you so much, I'm going to make a way that one day, we can be together again. You know, God didn't have to do that. He could have said, y'all get out. I'll make two new humans. We'll start over. But he didn't. He says, I love you so much. I'm going to make a way for you to get back to me. He promises to make it, make it right. And as time goes on, man, as we tend to do, gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Until it gets so bad, God says, I have to destroy the world and start over. So he floods the world, destroys everybody, but Noah and his, his family and promises Noah, says, Noah, I'm going to start over with you. 
I'm going to fulfill the promise I gave to Adam and Eve to fix this whole mess. I'm going to start it with you. And he reestablishes that covenant, that promise. And man gets worse and worse and worse. Man is still sinful and selfish and prideful. And we run from God and we disobey God. But God still loves them. Throughout the Old Testament, you see Israel sinning against God, judgment coming because of their sin, them repenting of their sin, turning to God, confessing it, and God bringing them back, and then it starting all over again and again and again. It's a vicious cycle, but it still goes on in our lives today. You know, we're the same way. We sin against God. We ignore God. We run from God until bad things happen and we need God. And then we run to God. And we're God and we're so sorry. We, we did wrong. We confess it. I'm never going to do it again. We get right back to where we should be faithful to God, being faithful to his word and praying in church. And we're doing all the right things. And life gets calm. Life gets good. And suddenly... We start ignoring God again. We sin against God again. We, we do what we want to do instead of what God commands us to do because we want to do our life how we want to do our life. And the cycle starts again and again and again. But God, no matter how many times we get back to that, we're going to do what we want to do. We're going to sin against God. We're going to disobey God. We're going to run from God. No matter how many times we do that, God is always faithful to us. God is always there that when we confess our sin and forsake our sin and say, God, I have sinned against you and we confess it, he's always there to forgive us and cleanse us. Even if we come to him about the same thing over and over and over again. You know, as humans, when people do the same thing over and over and over again, they say they're sorry we tend to not believe them, right? I mean, look, we've all have kids that do the same thing over and over and over again, and when they get in trouble, man, they're sorry. You know, Lexi and Connor are like, not even cats and dogs fighting. I, 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 they're, they're like at each other's throat all the time. It's, it's, it's so bad. I mean, we went to Rustburg yesterday to see my mom, and when we got there, me and April got out of the van and we're just like, oh my Lord, they're not coming back with us. One of them is staying here because we can't handle them together anymore. They're constantly fighting, calling each other names. I'm going to kill you. And you know, we're, we're finally sick of it. We're like, all right, that's it. We're tired of it. And we, this is the punishment. We're, and look, the punishment now is give me your stuff. Give me your phone. Give me your tablet. You can't watch TV. You can't play Xbox. Look, that is better than waterboarding them. They'll, they'll, they'll listen to that right away. And so it's like, okay, here's your punishment. Give me your stuff. Oh, we're sorry. They're always sorry when they're in trouble. But they keep doing it. And so I'm not at the point, I'm like, I don't care. You're not sorry because you keep doing it. I'm not going to forgive you. Aren't you glad God's not that way? Aren't you glad when you come to God and say, God... I did it again. I know last time I said I would never do it again, but I did it again. I'm sorry. And in your heart, you know, I'll probably do it another time. Aren't you glad God doesn't say, I don't believe you. 
Aren't you glad God says, I forgive you. We're, we're fine. We're good. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the gospel. That's what God is showing us in the book of Jeremiah. So because of Israel's unfaithfulness and idolatry and sin, God is going to send pain. But I want to show you how they got to this point. So look in Jeremiah chapter 2. Look at verse number 13. God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me and the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, a cistern, it's not really a well. It's kind of a, they would, it was a reservoir of water. Sometimes they were, had them in, in under like basements of houses or different areas. It was a, a place they could hold water. Sometimes it was considered a pot. It was just a place to keep water. Think of that. A cistern is a place you keep water. You think of it as a water tank or a hot water heater. That's your cistern. And so he says, not only have they rejected me, they've rejected God. He says, they have chosen things other than God to satisfy them. They've rejected the living water for these cisterns that they think will satisfy them, but they never will. So he is, he is, they have rejected what God has offered them and instead went to find things of their own that they thought would satisfy their thirst, but it was never able to satisfy them. Look at chapter 5, flip over to chapter 5, look at verse number 3. O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the, tr- upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. See, throughout the history of the nation of Israel, God has sent judgment to them. God has sent punishment. God has sent, you know, invasion or captivity or famine, but he's not sent it to punish them. He always sends it to correct them. They've suffered before. They've had captivity before. They've suffered famine before. They've suffered death before. But nothing has turned them to God for good. Why? Because they're stubborn. Because they want their own way. Because they think they know what is best for them. They've gotten to the point where their heart is so hard that they despise the instruction of God. They despise the warnings that are given to them because they think it doesn't matter what God does to us. We know what's best for us. Look at chapter 6, starting at verse number 10. <clears throat> to whom shall I speak? And to whom give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of fury of the Lord. I am weary with holding in. I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of, the, of young men together. For even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the age with him that is full of days. Now, circumcision in the Old Testament, it was a sign between God 
and Abraham or God and the nation of Israel, that they were his people. It was a, a outward, private sign that you belonged to God. So we don't do that anymore because we have the Holy Spirit. God, Paul, in the New Testament, he says that when we get saved, we have what is called the circumcision of the heart. When the Holy Spirit moves in and it removes that old dead heart, we have the circumcision of the heart, which is a private sign between us and God that we belong to him. So what is the circumcision of the year? What does that mean? Simply put, Isaiah is saying they are so far from God they have ignored God for so long that they can't even hear the word of God. That their, their heart is so hard that they won't even, they are refusing to listen to the word of God. They won't even listen when God speaks to him. They don't hear God. They don't understand God. God is speaking. God is yelling at them through these prophets to warn them. But their, their ears are covered up. They can't hear the word of God. Israel's become so sinful and God was so hurt that he tells Jeremiah, don't even pray for them to repent. He is, he is so hurt by Israel's rejection that in chapter 15, he tells Jeremiah, if Moses or Samuel come to me and ask me to spare the nation of Israel, I'm not going to listen. That's huge because Moses had talked to God a couple times and gotten him to spare the nation of Israel. But he says, I am so hurt by this that if Moses comes to me and says, God, spare your people, I'm not listening to Moses this time. I am sending judgment. You know, throughout the book, God compares how Israel has treated him to an unfaithful spouse. So all you, you, you married folks out there, how would you feel if you discovered your spouse was having an affair. It would hurt, right? It would hurt you. How much worse would it be if when you found out they told you, I don't love you anymore, I'm leaving you for this person, I'm gonna start a family with them, I'm gonna start a new life with them, I'm choosing them over you. That's what Israel is doing to God. That's how God feels. That's how hurt he is. They've not only been unfaithful to him, but they have left him for other gods and other pursuits. They've been unfaithful time after time after time, and God has continued to be faithful. He has kept his word to them despite how they have constantly been unfaithful to him, have constantly left him. He has been faithful to them. As a matter of fact, in Joshua 21, the Bible says that every promise of God had been fulfilled. He took them out of Egypt. He gave them the land. He chased out the inhabitants. He fed them in the wilderness. He provided for them in the wilderness. He kept his word, but they continued to reject him. They continued to go after false gods. So God tells Jeremiah to tell them that judgment's coming. But just like in Isaiah, there's a lot of hope in this story. See, the second part of Jeremiah begins in chapter 30. So go ahead and turn over there to chapter 31. But the second part of Jeremiah begins in chapter 30, one year before the invasion of Babylon and one year before the destruction of Israel. So look in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse number 31. 
Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So God is telling Jeremiah and he is telling Jerusalem and us that he is going to make a new covenant with them. Now, a covenant is a contract and he's already got a contract with the world. He's already got a contract with the nation of Israel, but they had broken it. So the only reason you make a new contract is because someone broke the old contract. In this case, Israel broke the contract. So there's three things that we can take away from this new covenant promise that God gives us in Isaiah chapter in Jeremiah 31. Here's the first one. First thing we need to look at, we need to look at the problem that we have. Again, in verse 31 and 32, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, Although as a husband unto them, saith the Lord. See, God, he is making a new contract with the world because we broke the first contract. God kept his word. You know, the contract he's talking about is the covenant he's talking about is the one he made to Abraham. Where he told Abraham, I'm, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. He's still going to keep that contract, but he's making a new one because Israel and mankind has continued to break the old one. God kept his word. He delivered them out of Egypt. He kept the promise he gave to Abraham. But notice in, the, in verse 32, he says, I brought them out of Egypt by my hand. Now, when you read that and think, oh, he just, like a child, like a father leading a child, he grabbed him by the hand and said, hey, let's go this way and kind of led them. When you look at the Hebrew, it literally means by force. God is saying, I had to drag them, kicking and screaming like a toddler into the will of God. I had to drag them out of slavery. I had to drag them through the wilderness. I had to drag them to the promised land. I had to drag them to conquer. The, I had to drag them to everything that was good for them because they were too stubborn and too selfish to do what was best for them. He had promised to protect them. He'd promised provision. He promised them a land they could call their own and he had to drag them kicking and screaming to it. Now, that doesn't make sense to us. Why would God have to drag Israel to the promised land, to the will of God. But that's exactly how we are. God promises us a joyful life, a life of purpose and meaning, but we run from it because we think our plan's better. 
We think how we want to live our life is better than what God has for us. The problem, the reason God needs a new covenant with us is our sinfulness. We are our worst enemy. That's hard for us to see because, look, we all think, let's be honest here, looking at, our, looking at yourself, you think you're pretty good, right? I mean, it's Sunday morning. You're in church. You're automatically better than everyone else that didn't come, right? Everyone that's not in church this morning, you're automatically better than them because you made it to church. You were faithful enough to get up on a Sunday morning when you could have slept in. You could have gone to brunch. You could, have, you could have stayed home and listened on Facebook, but no, you, you got up, you got dressed, you came to church to listen to some guy tell you you stink. You're good people, but we're not. None of us are. That's, we, we see ourselves as good, but we're not. Look what God thinks of you in Psalm chapter 53, verse number two. It says, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men, to see if there, there any, were any that did understand, any that did seek God. So he says, David says, look, God looked down from heaven to see if there was any good guy on the, earth, on the world, any good body, any, any, any person who was decent, anyone who searched after God, anyone who was trying to do good. Every one of them has gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, I always like to teach you the, the, you know, the Hebrew, because that's what it was written in. When the Bible says in the Hebrew, there is none that's good, there is none that does, that's doing right, that means you. That means me. But I'm a good person. Not according to God. God said, I looked down from heaven to see if there was anybody who was good. And there weren't none of them. They were all filthy. Now, that's harsh, but God is saying that because God is comparing us to him. You, compared to the rest of the world, you compared to, and look, I mean, Roanoke is getting pretty rough. Every morning I'm scanning the newspaper articles and every morning somebody's getting shot somewhere. Roanoke's a pretty rough place all of a sudden. Like, there was a body discovered last night, and they don't even know who it is yet. Roanoke's rough. So you, I hope, maybe you're, maybe you're the person killing everybody, I don't know, but you, compared to the murderers out there, are pretty good, right? None of, how many of y'all have killed somebody in the last seven days? All right. Two years, anybody? We got any murderers? All right, no. We're all good people. We've never murdered anyone, I hope. If you have, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I want to think good of you. You, compared to the world, are a pretty good person. You, compared to God, are filthy. Because God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect. And we, no matter how hard we try, cannot even come close. God cannot stand the sight of sin. Sin caused Satan to be cast out of heaven, to be thrown out of God's presence. Sin caused Adam and Eve to be cast out of the presence 
of God. Sin caused Israel to be exiled from the promised land. Sin keeps us from fellowshipping with God. See, in Leviticus, God said, I am your God and I am holy, so you be holy like I am holy. But we can't be holy. No matter how hard we try, we can't be holy. And that was the point of the law. The point of the law was to show Israel, to show us what was expected of us to be holy and to show us we can never do it. We can never meet up that, meet up to that standard. The purpose is to show us our sinfulness and our need for God so that we would run to God so he would, because he would do for us what we couldn't do. So he would see our need for him and run to him. But what usually happens is we run from God. Look what the Bible says in Jeremiah 5.11. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt, dealt very treacherously against me, saith the Lord. They have belied the Lord and said, it is not he. Neither shall either come upon us. Neither shall we see sword nor famine. And the prophets shall become wind, and the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done unto them. So Israel, what God's saying is Israel looked at me and said, God, we don't need you because you're not really God. You have no authority over us. You have no right to tell us how to live our lives. You have no right to tell us you're going to judge us because we're doing what we want to do because you don't have the power. You don't have the authority. You're worthless to us. Now, look, that sounds ridiculous, but we do it too. When we decide that our plan for marriage and sex is too, God's plan for marriage and sex is too restrictive, so we decide we're going to do what's best for us, what we want to do. When we are hurt, and even though God says we are to forgive those who have hurt us just like God forgave us when we hurt him. We know what the Bible says, but we decide that his command to forgive is wrong. So we refuse to offer forgiveness, even though God's forgiven us of so much. We decide God's plan for our money is wrong. So we ignore his command to give tithes and offerings. And we're going to use our money our way because we know what's best. Sin makes us our own God. It hardens us to the Holy Spirit and it deafens us to the Word of God and the voice of God. Sin destroys our ability to have fellowship with God. As a believer, that means God will not hear us. God will not speak to us. God resists us until we humble ourselves, confess our sin, and get back in relationship with Him. As unbelievers, it means that they are condemned to be separated from him for eternity in a real, literal hell. See, God had to make a new contract because we broke the first one. The one that was meant to bring us to him. So that's our problem. Let's see the number two. The second thing we want to look at is the promise that he gives. Look at verse 31 again. Behold... <clears throat> The days will come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Then skip down to 33. But there shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. So God, in his infinite wisdom 
and grace and mercy and love has made a new covenant with us to fix our problem. Even though we are unfaithful, he is faithful to fix the problem we created in the first place. See, God says that this new covenant, it's going to be where he gives us his law. It's not going to be where he gives us his law to obey, but he's going to put his law in our hearts. He promises to change us from the inside out. He says, I will give you a new heart because your old heart is corrupt and hard and broken and stubborn. So I'm going to give you a new heart because that is what it's going to take to fix your problem. He will become our God. In Romans 3, chapter 21, uh, chapter 3, verse 21, says, But now the righteousness of God is without the law. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a payment through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. Here's, here's what all that means. We are not equal to God and we never can be equal to God because we are sinful. We are wicked. Also, we are his creation. God can never be equal with us because of our sinfulness. But we are justified, which means we are made right with God. It is, if, it is just as if we had never sinned. We are justified, we are made right with God by His grace and by His grace alone. He chose to make this new covenant relationship with us. We didn't choose Him. He chose to justify us by having his son come live a perfectly sin sinless life, completely fulfill the law of God that we could never do and die in our place and rise again to pay our sin debt. He chose to do that. He promises to make a new contract with us, to make us holy like him, to bring us into his family and to put his word in us. And it is signed, sealed and delivered through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ as payment for our sins. God promised to fix what we had broken. So we see the problem we have, the promise he gives. Third thing I want to look at real quick is the hope that we see. The hope that we see. Now the hope we see in these verses is in all the I will statements that God makes in here. I want you to look at them again. He says, I will make a new covenant. I will put my law in their heart. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. The joy, the strength, the victory that we have is found in these I will statements because it takes the burden off of us to do it because we could never 
do it. All we have to do, God's made a contract with us where he does everything necessary. All we have to do is accept his gift of salvation. He pursues us. And when, uh, when our hearts are hard toward him, he makes it possible for us to truly love God. There is hope for us because we are unable to keep this covenant with God. So God made a new one. He says, I will fix your heart because you can't. I will forgive your sins because you can't make them right. You can't be justified by your own works. We are unable to follow God's law. So God says, I'll put my law in your heart. Where you don't have to worry about memorizing the law and, and trying to make sure you're following every, every jot and every tittle of the law. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you the Holy Spirit and put my law in your heart so that when you break my law, the Holy Spirit's there to say, hey, you, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have gone there. Shouldn't have watched that. You need to get right with God. See, that's what the Holy Spirit's job is. It is God's law in our heart to show us when we violate God's law. We keep running to other things besides God. So God makes us his people even when we try to run away from him. We're unable to change our own desires. So he writes his desires on our heart. God made a new covenant with us that gives us hope. He keeps it through Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection because we would never be able to keep our end of the bargain. Our hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. We can do nothing without him. We are hopeless without him. See, we are unable to keep our covenant with God because we're human. We're, we're faulty. We're frail. We're broken. We are prone to mistakes and running from God. We're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. So God became our high priest. Jesus became our redeemer. He wrapped himself in flesh. He lived a perfect, sinless life because we never could. He died to pay our sin debt and rose again to redeem us to God the Father and to prove that he was God. We have a huge problem that's going to condemn us to hell or break our fellowship with God. God, out of his love, he made a promise to fix our problem. If you're not a child of God this morning, your only hope is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter. I know you're in church on Sunday morning when you could be at home, sleeping, eating, not being told how bad you are. You could be doing so much better. You're in church. Doesn't matter. Your righteousness is as a filthy rag in front of God. Your only hope is to accept the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as payment of your sins. But hey, I know most of you here, we're all professing Christians. What's that mean for us? You cannot live the life God wants you to live on your own. You may be saved and on your way to heaven, but that's not enough. You need a relationship with God. You need to daily 
be in his word, talking to him, allowing him to talk to you through the Bible and through prayer. And when the Holy Spirit pricks your heart and says, there's something wrong in your life, you have to get it right with God. Because look, when the Holy Spirit convicts you, or you do something, look, because sometimes the Holy Spirit convicts us for something we, we shouldn't, you know, like yesterday. Y'all know how much I hate traffic. I don't know what they were doing at the Civic Center yesterday, but I was ready to murder somebody. Because I was stuck in the, 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 the off-ramp from 581 to 460 for 45 minutes. I was stuck on the exit ramp because of what they were, I don't know what they were doing, but I was so mad. And I got mad. And I was, I was, I mean, somebody tried to cut in front of me and I'm pointing at him and yelling. And Holy Spirit, you shouldn't act like that. You tell other people not to act like that. Why are you acting like that? And I'm, and the, in the whole, that case, the Holy Spirit was Connor in the back. Saying, Dad, you shouldn't act. You tell people not to do that. And I'm like, shut up. Don't tell me what I said. But I was convicted. I had to, I had to apologize to him and April and Lexi because I was acting like an idiot. And I had to, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me for that. You know, sometimes we sin. We don't mean to. It just... Our tempers flare up or something, and we just, we, we don't mean to sin. Sometimes we intentionally sin, and we know we're going to sin, and we plan to sin, and we sin, and the Holy Spirit convicts us, and we ignore him. You're ruining your relationship, your fellowship with God. You're going to destroy your life. So when the Holy Spirit, the Word of God written on your heart, convicts you and says, you need to confess that and forsake that. Maybe God speaks to your heart and says, hey, there's so-and-so in your life that you were rude to or hurtful to. You need to go get right with them before you get right with me. Because the Bible says, look, if you have a problem with a brother, before you make a sacrifice to God, go get right with your brother. Maybe there's someone you hurt that you need to go to and say, look, I, I, did, I know I hurt you and I'm sorry. It wasn't my intention or maybe it was your intention, then you really need to apologize. But when the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart, it's there to remind us we need to confess it, forsake it. Because God promises if you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look, it's easy to read the book of Jeremiah and say, man, God sure is warning Israel about their sin. He is, but he's also warning you. Babylon won't come and take you captive, but your sin will make you a slave. Your sin will remove you from the will of God and the promised land of God and the fellowship with God. So you're like, hey, I'm saved. I know I've accepted Christ as my Savior. Great. Check your life. How's, how's your walk with God? Because God says sin always has consequences. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.